From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by the Golden Steer. I'm John Katzlamitis, and I've covered Las Vegas since 1996. In Season 3 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, I go one-on-one with Oscar Goodman, one of the last living legends of the mob era. As always, I want to give you a quick warning that this podcast contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. You never become a a rat. That's against our religion, let's say. Yeah, nobody wanted rats. Fortunately, back in the time, there wasn't there's a couple, but not like you see later on, you know. That was a death sentence, you know, if you were a rat, yeah, to whoever was. With charges of murder, burglary, and theft of millions of dollars from casinos on the Strip, it's clear that some of the characters we've met this season openly disregarded the rule of law. But among the notorious organized crime associates in Las Vegas history, there was one rule that prevailed above all. Silence especially when questioned by authorities or outsiders. They called it omerta, derived from the Italian word umilta, or humility. Anyone who broke the code was known as a rat. You might hear words like informant or government witness throughout this episode, but there is a difference. An informant is someone out on the street providing information on their friends. A government witness is someone who has agreed to leave the mob and provides information from their knowledge to law enforcement, often to make a deal for a lesser sentence. Longtime Las Vegas lawyer Oscar Goodman encountered more than a few during his career defending mob associates charged with various crimes. Throughout the years, he's been outspoken about his disdain and distrust of those who get rewarded for helping the government land convictions. To this day, one name gets Oscar riled up more than any other, A man you might already be familiar with if you followed our first season of Mobbed Up, Frank Collada. Collada made his living burglarizing businesses as part of a group known as the Hole in the Wall Gang. It was formed by Tony Spilatro, a childhood friend of Collada's, whom Oscar Goodman represented in court on numerous occasions. Tony Spilatro would say to me, uh, whenever Collada would come around, stay away from this guy, he's a bad guy. Don't talk to him. He thinks he's a big shot. Uh, don't ever say anything you, you want spread all over the place. And I am convinced to this day that when Collada told his mother that he heard a tape where Tony Spilaccio said, I'm going to kill Collada because he's becoming a rat, there's no such tape. The reason that Collada flipped is very simple. And the reason that the mob in many ways had disappeared and very few people realize this. Aside from loyalty, it could be argued that more members of organized crime did not turn due to the process they would have to go through. With safeguards put into place during investigations to try to get to the truth, special attorney Stan Hunterton lays out why it was a gamble for those like Collada to stand up in court. It's important to start with an understanding that there were then and still are now key elements to the investigation and prosecution of organized crime cases. One was the passing of the wiretap law. The second 
was the passage in 1970 of the RICO law, racketeer influence and corrupt organization. This vastly improved the chances of prosecuting higher ups in the mob. Whereas before RICO, you might have gotten a two year sentence on something. Now you might get a 20 year sentence on something and that'll change your perspective on life. And the third element was the use of insiders or turned witnesses or cooperating witnesses, they were sometimes called, or even if I don't like it, flippers. So you had those three things, the authority to conduct legal electronic surveillance, second, big increases in potential sentencing, and third, the use of insiders. To understand how Collada came to testify against his childhood friend, you have to go back to the late 1970s when he crossed paths with a man named Jerry Listener. Word got out that Listener was going to testify against Spilatro and Collada and their operations, so Spilatro tasked Collada with killing Listener before that could happen. On October 11, 1979, Collada killed Listener in Listener's own home with a 22 caliber handgun, firing about a dozen rounds. Police said there was evidence that Listener had been tortured and that blood began in the garage and went through the entire house, leaving signs of a massive struggle. Listener was found in the swimming pool. Collada thought the mess was cleaned up and the Chicago outfit would be pleased, but that wasn't the case. Spilatro had not gotten permission to have Listener killed, as Collada originally thought. By 1982, Collada and the crew were facing several burglary-related charges. The FBI tried to entice Collada to turn on his friends by approaching him with information they gathered on a wiretap. The mob bosses were caught on tape telling Spilatro to clean his dirty laundry. Collada knew what that meant, that he was likely next in line to be killed. We have never before heard audio from Frank's time recording the first season of Mobbed Up. I never consider myself an informant. An informant is a person that wears a wire and goes out for self-gratification to make money. I was a, a witness in trials that I committed the actual robberies. I was able to testify on Tony, how he led us. I didn't wear a wire. I only told what was actually happening. And uh, I was offended and hurt at Tony because he betrayed me. And I know a lot of guys more than you could ever have in your lifetime that were friends of mine that were murdered by the Chicago outfit because they were naive and they thought, nah, it ain't my time, they ain't gonna kill me. I could name 39 of them right away. That's when I decided it ain't gonna work. We kill our own kind and that's what happened. Former Special Attorney Stan Hunterton spoke about the impact of Collada turning on Spilatro at the height of success for the Hole in the Wall gang. They got their name, Hole in the Wall gang, because their particular method of circumventing alarm systems, at the time mostly residential alarm systems, was to simply knock a hole in the wall. 
If you went through a door or a window, you would probably set off the alarm system. But if you used a sledgehammer and just punched through next to the door, you didn't. And hence, they got the name The Hole in the Wall Gang. Frank Collada was charged as the leader of the Hole in the Wall Gang. And that's when he decided to, in the term that's often used, especially on television, turn state's evidence. He became a government witness. And he, in turn, once he'd become a witness, decided he would testify against Anthony Spilatro. So that's why I call it the beginning of the end. At trial in October 1983, Collada admitted that he was involved in over 300 crimes, including murders, perjury, robberies, and burglaries. He also testified that Spilatro ordered him to make a telephone call that lured one of the 1962 murder victims, William McCarthy of the M&M Boys, to a restaurant. When I finally start confessing to the murders or talking about them, then I know I was locked in. I was locked in. With Collada in the clear and all of the evidence mounting against Spilatro, it seemed like this was the end of his reign. But with Goodman's help, Spilatro was acquitted of the murder charge after the circuit court judge discounted the testimony of Collada, the government's chief witness. In the old days, the mob hierarchy would take care of the soldiers, so to speak, or the soldier in the mob uh, was arrested. They would make sure they had a lawyer. They'd make sure that the guy's family uh, was taken care of, that uh, if bail was set, that the bail would be handled. The new mob, when a guy was arrested, they sort of let him sit and percolate, and they were just waiting. The FBI and law enforcement was waiting for the opportunity to go into the jail, make up some tail, and that's what they did with Collada. Collada wasn't worth, he wasn't worth two cents as far as Spilatro was concerned. Collada was given immunity for his previously uncharged crimes, but was sentenced to 10 years in prison. That was later reduced to eight years after Collada argued he was a valuable witness who provided information that was helping the government, a point that couldn't be argued by local and federal prosecutors. Now, let's be honest. These people, many of them, like Frank Collada, were professional criminals most of their lives. So lying wouldn't be that big a deal. And that's not the only thing that goes into the process. They have to get up on the witness stand in an open court and tell their story and make their accusations. And then remember that they're going to be prosecuted by usually very good attorneys. They're going to be cross-examined by people like Oscar. And so, first of all, they're being warned that they can lose their deal unless they tell the truth. Second of all, they have to undergo cross-examination by usually an excellent criminal defense attorney. And third, their testimony has to be believed by a jury. 
Oscar has been quoted often in interviews saying that of the hundreds of cases he's tried throughout the years, federal prosecutors and FBI agents would distort the facts. He claims they would make deals with people who would get on the witness stand and say whatever they were told to make a deal. The FBI would, when they're chasing the guy, before they put him in the program, they said he's the worst dude who ever lived. Once he goes into the program, they became best friends. I've never been able to figure that one out. It's beyond me. And the judges who would say, oh, he's a bad fella, he's a bad fella. When it came time that they joined the government side, he's a good fella, he's a good fella. And that, that used to make me sick because that doesn't get to the truth. Don't go anywhere. Mobbed up, the fight for Las Vegas. We'll be right back. Can't get enough of the intrigue, drama, and excitement behind the history of Las Vegas? Live it by dining at the Golden Steer Steakhouse, the oldest steakhouse in Las Vegas and an old haunt of Tony Spilatro's. You know, the guy from the podcast you're listening to. The Golden Steer has been serving up famous and infamous customers since 1958, from mobsters to the Rat Pack, Muhammad Ali to Holly Madison. Enjoy this classic experience in person or try the world-famous best steaks on earth in the comfort of your own home by ordering today at goldensteerlasvegas.com. Another case took Oscar Goodman back to his hometown in Philadelphia, where he represented Phil Leonetti, also known as Crazy Phil. Leonetti was the underboss of the Philadelphia crime family under his mentor and uncle, Nicky Scarfo. By his early 30s, Leonetti was already a made man and a millionaire. He controlled a lucrative trade of racketeering, illegal gambling, loan sharking, extortion, and skimming from the Atlantic City casinos, among other crimes. Leonetti was a very important fellow as far as the mob was concerned, and he, um, uh, he was incarcerated. The first case was the sale of uh, methamphetamine, and I came up with the idea, which I thought was a pretty good idea, that they weren't selling methamphetamine, this group of people, but they were extorting the methamphetamine salespeople in order to give them protection on the streets. And um, the jury came back with a not guilty, which was huge. Next one, a murder case, and that was federal. And they were all indicted, same group of guys. Actually, they were very nice to me. They were very good guys. Yeah? Oh, okay. yeah, very nice. <laughs> and uh, they they were charged with killing a fellow by the name of Phil Testa, uh, who was the son of, um, I guess, the underboss in uh, Philadelphia. And then the government pulled a fast one. This is the first time this had ever happened. They took the uh, drug case and the murder case they put it together in federal court under a RICO case, Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organization. And uh, we're screaming and yelling double jeopardy. They've already been found not guilty. But uh, there's certain cases the courts just won't do the right thing because they, they finally got somebody. So they had a second bite of the apple mm -hmm. and uh, they convicted everybody in the case. Leonetti was convicted of a racketeering charge and it involved his participation in four murders, an attempted murder, gambling and loan sharking. Goodman would go on to argue that Leonetti was entitled to probation and would make a plea that lasted around 45 minutes. The length of Oscar's argument turned out to be the perfect opportunity for Leonetti to make a deal. Before the judge was about to sentence, the government held up their hand to the judge and said, Your Honor, Mr. Leonetti joined our camp. He became an informant, informant. and testified against his uncle hmm. and testified against his mother and showed them where millions of dollars was I, I don't know whether you say buried in the in the wall, but uh, behind the wallpaper, and they put him in a witness protection program. 
At that time, Leonetti was the highest ranking member of the American Mafia to break his blood oath, Omerta. He hoped by cooperating with the government he could see his 45-year prison sentence reduced. He was right. His sentence was reduced to five years, five months, and five days as a result of his cooperation to bring down the Philadelphia family, including his uncle Nicky. As part of his deal, Leonetti would also enter the witness protection program, something Goodman takes issue with. I've always hated the witness protection program because to me it just breeds perjury and spawns lies and he's probably living a better life than you, Johnny. You have a pretty good life, okay? You don't like the witness protection program? No, I don't because they don't tell they don't tell the next door neighbor that this guy, he admitted to eight murders and they, they put him and they wanted to get his uncle more than anything, so they gave him a pass. The U.S. Marshal Service has protected, relocated, and given new identities to more than 19,000 witnesses and their family members since the program began in 1971. The Witness Protection Program was authorized by the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970 as a valuable tool in the government's battle against organized crime and terrorism. But for Goodman, the idea of former mob associates suddenly being protected by the government seemed ludicrous. Collada. He admitted to four murders, and he went into the witness protection program. And then something that always amazed me is the FBI would become the handler of somebody who was going into the program. The U.S. Marshal Service provides 24-hour protection to all witnesses while they are in a high-threat environment, including pretrial conferences, trial testimonials, and other court appearances. The entire notion of a high-ranking member of organized crime turning on lifelong friends and a life of crime isn't one that comes easy, according to Stan Hunterton. These people who decide to change sides and testify for the government, they don't just get up on the witness stand and say anything they want, okay? The process involves first, if they're gonna make some kind of deal they're gonna answer very difficult questions from prosecutors like myself. And they're going to be told if they're working with a prosecutor who's doing his job, that if they lie about anything, if they make anything up, if they embellish their stories, they can lose their deal. Now, they've made this deal which is going to change their lives, their families' lives, perhaps put their own life in danger. And the first thing they're told is, okay, the, the lying's all over. You have to tell us the truth or you risk not getting your deal. That's a significant incentive for them to tell the truth. So those are three significant safeguards against the evils, as Oscar would put it, of using turned witnesses. I'm, I'm not saying the system's perfect or that no turned witness has ever lied on the witness stand. I'm sure that's happened. I am saying there's another side to that story that's an important part of the process. Jeff Schumacher from the Mob Museum offers his perspective as well. From my standpoint, you know, as a citizen, <laughs> as someone who's an observer, oftentimes those, those whistleblowers, right, 
Uh, we celebrate whistleblowers when they're in government and then they come out and expose wrongdoing that is happening. If you're a criminal and then you become a government witness or an informant, then you're, you're helping the cause of justice as long as you're telling the truth. And that is the, that's where Oscar, I think, makes a good point. So sometimes informants and, and government witnesses will say whatever it takes in order to get the advantages that come with being a government witness. So they may lie uh, to, to help the government make its case. That is wrong, and that needs to be exposed if someone is lying, uh, if you can't expose it. While retaliation in criminal circles is not uncommon, no witness security program participant following program guidelines has been harmed or killed while under the active protection of the U.S. Marshals Service. Still, nobody is off limits when it comes to the mob protecting what it had built throughout the years. Even those closest to mob associates knew better than to ask questions. Just ask Meyer Lansky II, whose grandfather, Meyer Lansky, was known as the mob's accountant and was instrumental in the development of the National Crime Syndicate. We would be driving down the street one time and my grandfather said, pull over, he pulled over, he went across the street and talked to a guy and he was kind of whispering in his ear. So I asked the driver at the time, his name was Jaime, I said, Jaime, who is that? And he says, well, let me tell you something, Meyer, up front. You never want to ask who that is because it could put you in danger. If your grandfather tells you about that, then it's fine, but otherwise don't ask. That was a death sentence, you know, if you were a rat, yeah, to that whoever was, you know. To those fighting for justice on the government side, informants were a critical part of their operations. Former Senator and Nevada Gaming Commission Chairman Harry Reid talked about the significance of getting former mob associates to turn or provide information that would change history. The mob would have destroyed Las Vegas. The only question, not if, but when it would be destroyed. Dennis Arnaldi, a retired FBI agent who worked closely with Frank Collada after he became a government witness, said Collada provided a lot of valuable information that changed the narrative of the mob's hold in Las Vegas. He said, quote, a lot of people went to jail, at least in part because of Frank's information. He was very important to us in solving these crimes. He helped us connect the dots. Goodman and Collada would cross paths in the time leading up to Collada testifying against Spilatro. Collada died in 2020 at the age of 81, but during their last run-in years before his death, Oscar remembers the moment he wishes he could take back. A first-class bum. Um, a first-class lying bum. I only made one mistake in my life. I got to tell you about this mistake. Okay, I think you know, I know where we're going here. Well, I'm going to yeah, tell you. You were representing Frank Collada. No, I, I wouldn't it? represent him. Didn't you represent him briefly? No, no. Uh, John, uh, Johnny Mommet, okay. an attorney in town, yes. had his law office on top of mine mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the building over at 4th Street. And uh, we had to go to the court, and he uh, brought uh, Collada down to my office uh, to uh, show uh, me how nice he looked. Not Johnny. Johnny always looked nice. John, but yes. Collada. Mm -hmm. like John And I, uh, so, I'm looking mm -hmm. at Collada. I said, what? You're going to court? You don't even have a tie on? What kind of respect is the judge going to think about you? And uh, he says, I don't know how to. I, I said, you don't know how to do what? He says, tie a tie. So I took my tie off and I put it around. And I tied it. The only mistake I made is I didn't pull it tighter. The thought of the government going to any lengths to entrap Goodman's clients did not sit well with him. 
It was just one of the many issues that led to a contentious relationship between Goodman and the FBI. Soon, though, the stakes would be raised as the FBI set their sights on another person, a man they would at times refer to as a consigliere of the mob, Oscar Goodman himself. On part five of Mobbed Up, the fight for Las Vegas, Oscar Goodman's battle for justice continues. He said, if anything happens to this guy, uh, we're gonna hold you responsible. I said, hold me responsible? I'm an insurance agent uh, for the FBI now? The FBI sends one of their own undercover to investigate claims of Goodman being more than just a trusted attorney. You know, everybody thinks uh, that I was a consigliere and that if someone was gonna get killed here, they had to get my permission in order to kill him. You wanna know something? I let them think it. Do I know what's in the, the, the darkest corners of Oscar's background when it comes to interacting with these individuals? I do not. This has been part four, season three of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And be sure to leave us a rating or review. Production staff includes managing editor Anastasia Hendricks, producer Carrie Roper, field and studio production by Larry Meir, sound design and mix by Greg Conway. Special thanks to Oscar's Steakhouse in downtown Las Vegas at the Plaza for hosting us on site. And our guests, Stan Hunterton, Meyer Lansky II, Jeff Schumacher, and the audio from season one of Mobbed Up featuring the late Frank Collada. To learn more about Mobbed Up, visit lvrj.com backslash podcasts. I'm Las Vegas Review-Journal columnist John Katzlamitis. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode.